Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 58 of Collectible Live. The intro didn't seem to work, but that's okay. Today is Monday, January the 16th, 2023. My name is Jeremy Lee. I would like to thank everyone who tuned in last time with our guest, Matthew Cyrilnik, for what was really an amazing discussion about the eye appeal of sports cards and really buying the card and not the holder. But we are going to get to today's episode, so let's bring out our guest. He is the CEO of Collectible, Ezra Levine. Welcome to Collectible Live, and how are you today? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for having me on. I think it's been about two months since we last spoke, so lots, a lot's happened since then, so we're excited to talk. All right. Yes, sir, we are. Lots of, lots of news coming out of Collectible uh, in the last week, and I'm excited to learn more about it and how it works. So, Listen, let's dive right in and uh, and let's start off with this. So uh, in this in the press release that was released this past week, it was it, the press release discussed the matter around the BWIC, the bids wanted in competition, new model that Collectible is offering and introducing on its platform. We are going to get into and let me just say to the audience uh, right off the bat here, there are going I'm sure there's gonna be lots of questions on how this works. So we are going to get through them. Uh, the first part of the episode, and maybe we may hold some of the questions that come in through the chat till the end for anything that wasn't answered, but please be patient as we do get to these. Uh, but Ezra, I'm curious if we could just jump right in with really what was the motivation behind the BWIC, the Bids Wanted in Competition Innovation for Collectible? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, one thing Collectible has always tried to do uh, since day one was really advance the hobby forward to grow the hobby and to, and to innovate, right? I mean, there's a lot of amazing companies, a lot of amazing entrepreneurs, and people have been doing this for a long time, right? So we, we, we never want to do something that's already been done, right? We always try to move 
the industry forward and to grow it as best we can. So this is uh, a new a new process, a new competitive bidding process for the collectibles market. Certainly not a new process for the financial markets, right? So uh, you know it's called bids wanted in competition. It is a competitive bidding process. Uh, again, tried and true over the financial markets for decades. They transact billions of dollars of uh, pretty esoteric financial instruments this way. And we thought it was a really uh, interesting application for the, for the collectibles market. There's really also interesting uh, implications for uh, fractional investors on the collectible. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But you know, really, it's, it's our uh, continued expansion of the platform to you know, be able to take in new members, to be able to showcase uh, different ways that people can utilize fractional ownership, to really advance the collectibles industry forward, to advance collectibles as an alternative asset. And you know, we're just really excited for this to get going. All right. So thank you for the for the context on it. And I guess, you know, it's I read the press release and I'm 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 I come away with questions because I don't necessarily understand all, all the financial uh, jargon that we're we're taking from the traditional financial markets and now applying them to collectibles. So can you you know, we've talked about BWIC, it's bids wanted in competition, uh, but let's and I, I appreciate the innovation and I appreciate the the exploration that you're undertaking to find new ways to uh, stimulate the market to to you know increase the liquidity we you mentioned in the press release price discovery there's so much sort of um really things that sound great about it but my biggest question is how does this process work from start to finish like can you ex- get in right into the the weeds of this thing what is it going to look like for people they get they come onto the website the first the first offer when is the first BWIC uh, pool of or grouping of assets going to be offered? And what's going to happen when I go to the website that day? Take us through the whole process, if you can, please. So the, the first bids wanted in competition will be Sunday night, starting next Sunday. Uh, there's actually, if you go onto the collectible uh, website or the app, there's a pretty big countdown clock, a countdown timer that stares you right in the face. So every time I go on, it gives me a lot of excitement, a lot of anxiety. You know, it's, it's a new product launch for Collectible. I'm getting the same reminiscences that I did when we first launched Fractional. Very, very exciting. Um, yeah, so the, the first one's going to be next Sunday night. Starts at 8 p.m. And the whole thing is a seven-day process. Start to finish seven days. So over over in a week. Uh, so, you know, my, my job here is to try to take what could seem like a complicated process and make it pretty simple. And I actually do think it is very simple. And people uh, hear it and they'll understand it. And I'm sure... When people see it in motion, they'll, they'll get it even more. Uh, the easiest way to really explain it is it has a lot of characteristics of an auction, right? So people, I'm sure in the collectibles industry, are very familiar with auctions, right? So think of a seven-day auction, right? There's two parts of the seven-day auction, the first five days, which is called the qualifying rounds, and then the final two days, which is the final round. You can kind of think of the final round almost like extended bidding, right? So again, to recap, seven days all in. Uh, the first round is five days, and the second round is uh, two days, right? So within the first five days, you'll go on the collectible platform, whether the app or the mobile, you'll see uh, very curated, iconic collectible assets. So for the first one, you know, it's around 25 assets. We're expecting uh, the, you know, the total value to be somewhere around the 7 to $8 million mark of those uh, 25 assets. So really, uh, you know, sort of high-end curated material. Uh, and you'll be able to place bids, right? So it'll look pretty similar to a traditional auction house. Uh, here's the caveat. You can bid in two different ways. You can either bid as an individual, 
right, on a single lot or multiple lots, just like you would any other auction. Or you could bid as part of a group, as part of a fractional group, right? So there are two different ways to bid uh, on individual lots within it. After the first five days, right, the top three bids and only the top three bids advance to the final round. So everyone in the first five days is, by the way, anyone in the first five days is only allowed one bid. So you can't submit multiple bids. You get one bid and one bid only. This incentivizes people to bid competitively. If you're not in the top three, you do not have a shot to own the asset individually. So you get one bid, has to be competitive because you need to advance to the next round to be able to own it. Uh, from there, the top three bids again are selected and you move on to the, the essentially the championship round, right into the playoffs, into the extended bidding. If you do not advance, you that doesn't mean that you're out of the asset altogether. Again, you could drop down to a group bid. So you can join other collectors, other investors, whatever you want to call yourselves, uh, into a group bid. So you still have a chance to win the asset, just not individually. At the end of uh, at the end of the five days, right? So now we move on to the, the final round. Uh, again, just the top three individual bids get one more bid, one more best and final. So come, so come with your your best offer. Come with the heat, uh, and the best offer individually is presented to the seller. At the same time, there's the, the group bid. So we essentially aggregate uh, how many people are willing to buy it fractionally, and that essentially competes against the individual bid. Best offer wins, and the seller will ultimately uh, have the chance to sell the asset for whatever they perceive to be the best offer between the, in the individual bid or the fractional bid. So would there be any reason for the owner to take a lower bid? Like if the, if the, fra if the fractional bid or the group bid is lower than the individual people's bids within at that final stage of the, of the, of the bidding competition, why would the owner take the lower bid? You made it sound like they might. Yeah. Well, you know, what, one great thing about fraction, which a lot of people love, uh, is the ability to retain equity in your asset, right? So we have a lot of consigners who say, hey, look, you know, I love a little liquidity, right? Uh, but I believe in the upside. I believe that this is a core holding. I believe this is a prized possession. I believe this has upside. So they can say, hey, look, I, I want to retain some equity in this asset. So maybe they get a little bit less on the valuation side, but they have more upside to come. So that's, that's one core reason uh, why someone might elect the, the, the fractional bid if it's lower than the individual bid. One thing that I, well, thank you for that. Something that I, and that, that's a great explanation, by the way, makes sense. One of the things that I like about this group bidding piece is that it seems like this, this bids wanted in competition. I, I keep saying it just so people understand. BWIC, bids wanted in competition. It almost formalizes what might be going on or what could potentially be going out there in the, in the wild of the hobby amongst all the, uh, all the auction houses is that people might be doing this less formally already or informally already there might be a few people that say hey this this lebron james rpa is going up on pwcc next week well, hey you want to let's all take a third of it and let's buy it that way now it's different because there's no competition against them it's it's they win it well there is they win it or they don't so it's just a, a simple bidding process but do you ever look at it like that that this is maybe going to like, could this scale into something that happens more and more where someone might say to you, hey, guys, you know, we love what you're we love the model and the and the system that you've implemented here. But we want to go after more items than you're offering. You're only offering 25 this week. We want to go. You know, we have we like this over there and that over there. Like how like I are 
somebody could knock this off or you could do it yourselves. What, what are your thoughts on that? Great, great, great question. Uh, and it's definitely something we thought through. Uh, so this, this, we're calling it group bidding, right? It's the ability to uh, buy assets with other people, right? We're calling this group bidding. Uh, so we're really formally rolling out on items on collectible first. But shortly after, we're planning on launching this uh, for any marketplace on any, you know, essentially any vertical, any collectible item, theoretically could be group bid on, right? So I will be making some announcements probably shortly on the, the formal rollout of group bidding. Uh, I think there's been one thing that I've, I've been saying, uh, you know, for the last couple of months, which is I think the days of fractional being siloed onto a fractional ownership platform like collectible uh, are, not, are not long, right? I think fractional will be uh, really extended to be able to participate again, in multiple different auction houses, multiple different marketplaces. Uh, the, the application is there, the technology is there, the regulatory process is there. Uh, that's really what Collectible specializes in. So yeah, I mean, our vision, this is really what we're building towards, is uh, essentially any asset, any auction house can have a, a regulated and formalized uh, way for people to band together and buy assets, whether that's uh, anonymously with other collectors on Collectible, which is essentially what Fractional ownership is where you're buying into an asset. You don't necessarily know exactly who else uh, is in on that asset, or you could do it uh, as part of a private group. So Jeremy, you might invite five of your closest friends, your family, whomever, right? Who all have a shared love of a certain asset and really want to own it together, right? So this is really a formalization of exactly what you're saying, which is people already doing this, right? Just, just the same yeah. way people are already doing fractional before we launched fractional, right? There's, you know, that, that, that famous story, of Gretzky, right, with the Hannes Wagner card, with Gretzky and the owner of the LA Kings, they fractionally bought, you know, Hannes Wagner card. They, you know, multiple people bought it and they owned it together, right? That's fractional ownership really in a nutshell. It wasn't done in a regulated formalized process, but it was being done, right? So our view is that, yeah, I mean, this is something that happens all the time. People uh, buy cards or any kind of collectible together, uh, but there, then there's no real way to kind of formalize that unless people do all the legal work and the custodianship and then where do you keep it? And what if one person wants to sell, but multiple, there's a ton of pain points with it. We're bringing, you know, sort of a formalized regulated structure to it. Okay. You know, and you mentioned how, you know, you can invite your family and that it made me think of an analogy and um, this is probably loose, but it, it had me smirking, which is somebody goes to a golf club to play golf. You know, they, they might take their, their, their three family members with them. And now they know who they're going to go golf with. They've got their group of four. But they may not, they might not have anyone that wants to go with them. So instead they'll go to the golf course, they'll go to the club themselves, and they'll be randomly put with three people they may or may not have no, ever known, and they'll go golfing together that way. That's kind of the anonymous side of it. I don't know, probably silly, but that popped well, into no, my it's, mind. It's not, it's not silly. Actually, if you, if you want to know the inside baseball, uh, how group bidding really came about was fantasy sports. Right? Oh, it's really? a, really, a very similar model to I don't know if anyone uh, who's watching this is, is the commissioner of their fantasy football league, right? But uh, when you create a fantasy league, you essentially can join it in two ways. You can create your own private group and one person becomes a commissioner and they essentially can invite other people to join the, the private league. Or they can join a public league, maybe facilitated by ESPN or Yahoo or whoever your fantasy sports provider is where you're competing against random people on that site. But so think of it very similar to that, right? You can bid uh, together as part of a private group where one person's the commissioner or you could bid uh, with other collectors who happen to have a shared uh, interest, right? You might not know them all personally. I think that'd be actually kind of cool if we did, you know, shareholder summits or, you know, something to really connect the people who 
clearly have a shared passion, a shared love of of collectibles. But so that actually, if you want to, if you want to know that the real uh, sort of inspiration behind this, it actually was fantasy sports. Oh, that's, that's pretty cool. It all, it all, it all comes full circle is when, when we say that sports are, are part of the motivation. All right. Before I get to my next question, let's just say hello to, we got the loud collector joining us. Giddy up. What's going on? Jake Dahl is with us. Mod cult is with us. MLW. Hello to you as well. Baseball card curmudgeon. That's Julian. What's going on? Uh, LinkedIn user, this is uh, the people at Piece of the Game. It's a great discovery tool for hard-to-price rare assets. So they seem to understand what BWIC is all about. And Junk Wax Museum says, no better show to listen to, especially when uploading to the old eBay. Very nice. All right. So my next question is really, you know, you you have some Wall Street experience as a finance professional. And I'm assuming that it's that experience that made you aware of the BWIC model in the first place. Why do you think it's going to work for collectibles? Yeah, a great, great, great question. Right. I think, you know, one risk we have with naming it bids wanted in competition is that it sounds financial. Right. And I think a lot of people, when they hear something financial uh, in nature, their brains immediately turn off. Uh, you're right. I mean, you know, I and a couple of the members of the team you know, do have Wall Street experience and we are familiar with actually participating and trading some of these BWICs, and we, and we saw that it works, right? It's really a great way to run a formalized process to take in bids, right? I mean, you could think of anything that happens in the collectible market, right? People are bidding on stuff all the time, right? Whether they're a public auction or maybe you're putting in a bid for something on buy now. I mean, you're, you're, you know, everyone who's a collector is familiar with some sort of competitive bidding process, right? This is kind of no different in a lot of, in a lot of ways, right? You're putting in a bid for a collectible asset. Um, you know, one reason why we think it's perfect is like a lot of the types of assets that trade uh, through BWICs in the public markets, sometimes in collectibles, there's no obvious market clearing price, particularly, uh, you know, on, as, as mentioned before, on rare pieces, one of ones, rare pieces, items that haven't sold maybe ever, haven't sold in 10 years, right? I mean, there's just a lot of these pieces that collectibles involved and you can look at you know, a list of 25, 25 amazing, amazing assets, again, representing, you know, somewhere between seven to $8 million worth of stuff. A lot of these pieces, there's no obvious market clearing price. Take a 52 Bowman SGC 10, right? I mean, how many times does that trade, right? Um, and again, you can go down the list of the items that we have. So, you know, it's really a way to kind of do a formalized process for people to submit their best offers to have a chance to win the asset. Right. And ultimately, you know, our view here is that, look, I mean, this is, you know, a, a difficult time in a lot of markets, not just the collective markets at the high end. Right. But, you know, we want to create a process where sellers want to bring great assets to the market in a way that was price protected, discreet and really facilitated a true a competitive bidding process. Oftentimes people want to see you know, what they could get for the asset. And then ultimately, you know, sort of decide once they know what they could sell it for to either sell it or not sell it. When you do an auction, you're sort of pot committed, right? You either sell it. Uh, if you don't have reserve, you, you know, sell it. You take a pretty substantial binary risk. And that's great for a lot of assets. But, you know, I'm sure you talked to a lot of collectors. I talked to a lot of collectors. A lot of people, there are a lot of assets. They are just not auction assets, right? They just don't want to take that binary risk. Of course, you can mitigate risk in the auctions by using a reserve price. But I think a lot of people know that uh, using a reserve price at auction kind of doesn't work the way it's intended to work, right? Oftentimes, putting a reserve price at auction, it sort of acts as the ceiling, not 
the floor, if you know what I mean, right? And that's that really is not necessarily how you know we think it should work, right? So it's a way uh, for people to bring great assets to the market, see what they're worth, and ultimately, if they get bids that are worth uh, transacting, they can transact, right? But there's no uh, asset impairment if you know a bid doesn't come above your reserve price, um, and so we're, we're we're excited. We think this is going to bring a lot of great assets to the table to really see what the assets are worth and to ultimately give a chance for liquidity uh, for assets that really are not uh, good auction assets. Great. No, appreciate that. How do you see the sort of the interactivity between the, the BWIC model that's launching on collectible and the traditional fractional model that's already on collectible? How do, how are these going to interface with each other? Yeah, no, great, great question. Uh, so in, in a lot of ways, uh, one is we are acutely aware of um, of the need and the want for more liquidity on the fractional side. You know, one thing that we study closely is uh, you know the price at which assets are trading on the fractional markets relative to you know comparable sales at auction. And the, the data is rather interesting. I mean, there's a lot of examples. Again, not securities advice of any kind, but there's a lot of examples of assets that are trading well below, well below. Uh, recent auction sales on very similar, if not identical assets, right? Um, so this is a way for us to really kind of help realize some of those valuation gaps, right? To help create a catalyst for shareholders that even if for whatever reason, you know, the secondary markets are fractional aren't kind of doing what they're supposed to do, for lack of a better term, uh, that we want shareholders to know that we're going to take action, right? That we're going to essentially take, you know, a shareholder catalyst, right? In the public markets, you can do this all the time, right? Not individuals, but you, know, you can go essentially go activist on a company, right? Shareholders who are, who are not pleased with the way a stock is trading can essentially go activist, right? And, and try to affect, affect change, right? Or to close the valuation gap. Think of BWIC and this competitive bidding process as a way for, uh, you know, collectible and shareholders together to help close some of these valuation gaps and to create additional uh, liquidity for, you know, for the market. So in fraction, you're going to have a lot of liquidity. Right. You get liquidity every day, right? From 930 to, you know, to four o'clock, five days a week, true stock market hours. You get liquidity there if you want, if, you know, if there's liquidity to be had. Uh, but, you know, at least once a year, each asset, every asset on collectible will be eligible to be put up for a competitive bidding process, right? So, you know, we believe that this is going to be a pretty interesting catalyst for the fractional space for people to know that, hey, look, you know, at least once a year, every asset will be eligible for a competitive bidding process whereby, you know, we might get uh, competitive offers uh, that shareholders ultimately elect to sell and, um, and, they'll, and, and they'll get paid out that way, right? We do a lot of buyout offers, collectible, you know, as over 50 buyout offers, I think 28 of which have been sold, average return above IPO price, somewhere in the 55% range. Right? So this is another way that collectible can bring additional shareholder catalysts to the market. So that's, that's one. Uh, two is we look at uh, BWIC uh, and really, I would say, by extension, group bidding, right? So again, just to recap, group bidding is the ability for a group of people fractionally to buy an asset or bid on an asset together, right? We look at this almost as you know, the next application of fractional, right? So we think of what fractional has been to date, right? Fractional has been collectible uh, and the consigner mutually negotiate a price. Then we then essentially market the asset at that price. And we need to get people to buy in at that price, right? This has worked. I mean, no doubt it's worked. We've done, you know, 55 million or whatever it is in uh, completed transactions. Uh, and we have a lot of great case studies. 
But, you know, I think people are also aware that sometimes picking a price is very difficult on these collectible assets, right? Again, oftentimes no obvious market clearing price, especially when things are one of a kind assets or haven't traded in a long time. So this process really is a way for us to kind of invert it. As opposed to collectible picking a price, the market is now picking a price, right? So if enough people agree on a valuation and they can raise enough money to compete against individual bidders, it wins, right? So it's really, I think of it as a little David versus Goliath, a little fractional versus individual. And uh, I think it will be pretty fun. Okay. Lots there. Lots there to chew on. Um, seems to me like, you know, under the the existing collectible model, which is just, you know, fractional IPOs and then sitting back and waiting for buyout offers to come, that that's one thing that this, how this uh, increases the liquidity is that we don't need to sit there and wait for an offer to come that might not come in for one or two years or longer. We are going to have the ability to to offer up each asset that's on the collectible platform under the BWIC model once a year so that there is the ability for the liquidity of the asset by the shareholders and also uh, the price discovery. Whereas, you know, if, if the bidder, number one, it might, an asset may now achieve a higher price than, than the most recent trade extrapolated would indicate because there's someone out there who may want to purchase it or a group of people who may want to purchase it. Um, but it also allows them to say, hey, that's not enough. We're going to reject the sale and continue to hold it. But now they might know that, you know what, that might be what it's worth because this went through a very formal BWIC process. So if they reject it, then what ha- what I'm thinking might happen, and you can jump in here, is that maybe at that point, a buyout offer comes for, you know, because let's say let's say that the, 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 the most competitive BWIC offer is a million dollars, but the, the shareholders on collectible want 1.25 million for it. And then somebody who who put in their most competitive bid didn't get as competitive as they really could have. And they say, well, OK, they didn't take the million through BWIC. I'm going to come back on a on a with a buyout offer the old way on collectible at, say, 1.25. Can that situation happen? Yeah. So, again, you know, we'll, we'll put these things to a competitive bidding process. Uh, you know, we'll take shareholder input in terms of where they would be selling it. So think of you know, what happens when collectible gets a normal buyout, right? All shareholders get you know, a survey from us via text message or very, uh, via email, and they essentially elect, do you want to sell it at you know, a designated price or not, right? And then collectible essentially aggregates a data parata, and we ultimately accept it uh, or not on behalf of shareholders. Uh, we're doing a similar process here where shareholders can before the bids wanted and competition process begins, can indicate the collectible, do you want to sell it? And if you do want to sell it, at what price would you be a willing seller? Collectible then will aggregate that data and essentially will use that uh, as essentially a silent reserve price. In this process, important to note, uh, we're not using the term reserve, we're using the term context. Right? So a context price is a reserve price. A reserve price is a context price. Uh, so just you know, just for, for, for everyone's sort of Ter, you know, terminology here, context price uh, is really reserve price. So yeah, we are taking shareholder input. Uh, we'll, you know, very much be guided by shareholder input. That's something we've always done consistently uh, and it's exciting. But yeah, I mean, if, if that context price, aka the reserve price is not hit, the asset will resume trading on collectible uh, and bids are always wanted, right? Shareholders can always get buyout offers. So, you know, we think between the, the secondary market liquidity uh, between the sort of structured BWIC process, shareholders knowing that 
at least once per year, these assets will go for a formal bidding process and the ability to also get a buyout offer uh, essentially at any time that, you know, the, the liquidity profile of fractional offerings will increase dramatically. So you mentioned that the the group bidding piece, well, it's all there's a lot of anonymity with who's bidding and, and what, you know, who's in the group that might be bidding, what individuals are bidding. And I know that, you know, the bidding process on on pretty much all action, all auction platforms are anonymous. But what sort of assurance does the market have that or transparency will be offered? So to, to ensure that, you know, they're no matter what you do, someone might might call funny business on things, right? So what what I'm and I'm sure you guys are smart over there. I'm sure you've already thought about this. What how can how can we be confident that everything going on is above board and there, you know, under this under the anonymity of the uh, bidding in the group? Yeah, no, great, great question there, right? So, uh, you know, for one, I mean, a lot of a lot of the people who are already you know sort of eligible to bid, you know, collectible has over a hundred thousand. Uh, users who've gone through a formal KYC AML process. So we probably know more, uh, you know, about our bidders than most auction houses do, right? So that that helps just in terms of sort of bidder verification. Um, you know, the other is, you know, look, I mean, you know, we we are an SEC regulated business, right? We're an SEC regulated platform. Uh, and so, you know, we take every precaution we can, right? So we, you know, we're, we're, we're very acutely aware of this and we've always prioritized, you know, sort of the, the integrity uh, of of our platform, so yeah, I mean you know, the the process is designed to purposely not publicize uh, what bids come in and how many bids come in. Again, you could be bidding against a thousand people, or you could be bidding against one person, right? Uh, you know, everything is purposely concealed, and we think that that will lead to better discovery of of a true market clearing price and more and more and more integrity of the bidding process overall. All right, no, great stuff. Um, there was a question that came in from uh, a, a follower on, I believe, Twitter, Train74, wanted to know, what is the thought process in selecting the assets for the BWIC platform? Why are some chosen and not others? Is there a criteria you are using? Is it random? How does that, what's that process like? Yeah, again, every asset on Collectible will be eligible for it, right? So it's a first one. We're starting off small uh, with just three, but you know, in every subsequent BWIC, there will be shareholder assets included. So I would just I would encourage you to kind of stay tuned. Uh, you'll probably be receiving communications for us uh, shortly for the next BWIC process. But again, every asset on collectible will be eligible for the BWIC process. So it might just be random which ones are which week. Correct. Yep. And okay. again, you know, if there are ones that are particularly, you know, sort of ripe for a particular time, maybe seasonality, uh, maybe, you know, hey, football cards get hot in advance of the season. I mean, we'll definitely look at things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately every asset will uh, will be eligible. Okay, we have two questions here that relate to the context price. One, Thomas Peterson just put in the chat. He's actually got three questions in. The other one came in, I believe, on Twitter from Needs 14 So I'm going to read Needs as first, and then we'll get to Thomas's. But he says, if a bid is received in excess of the context price, will fractional owners of an asset have another opportunity to vote on the sale of the asset? So let's start with that. Yeah. So the, the, the answer there is, is likely not, right? Is likely not. So again, we're, we're taking the, the input essentially in advance, right? So we're going to be aggregating all the data, uh, all the shareholder wishes in advance, and then using that as a silent context price. So, um, you know, your, your feedback and your, you know, your input is absolutely considered and absolutely aggregated in terms of creating that price. All right. Then Thomas Peterson question. I'm going to, uh, 
There's three of them. I'm going to put them on the screen here. Number one, how many people will know the context price? We'll go one at a time. How many people will know the context price? Yeah, very, very, very few, right? So it's really just going to be collectibles, internal team, uh, and the the consigner, right? So ultimately, consigners, by the way, don't have to put a context price, reserve price. Uh, some people might just say, hey, whatever this process brings, this process brings. Uh, and, you know, essentially, I'll elect to sell it or not, right? So context prices are not a requirement, um, but it does offer another degree of, 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 of seller protection there. If the, if the seller is a group of fractional owners on collectible, do they vote on the context price? How will that work? Yeah. So, so this goes back to the, the surveys, right? So we've actually already taken these surveys. So we, we were, we have three shareholder assets that are going up in the first Buick. Uh, all shareholders received communication this past week asking for, do you want to sell it? And at what price would you sell it? So Collectible uh, now has all the information. Uh, and from that information, we'll prorate the results and use that as a context price. Okay. So there's question one. Question two, who determines... Okay, we, we've, we've addressed who determines the context price. Number three is if a bid is above... Sorry, if a bid price is above the context price, will the asset transact at the bid price or the context price? The bid, yeah. right? Yeah. So it'll be, again, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be at the highest bid uh, for sellers, right? So you could have... For ease of example, you could have a you know a context price, a reserve price of a hundred thousand, just a, like an auction, right? Auction houses use a reserve price. Bids can definitely come in above that. And obviously, if you're selling an asset, you want to try to sell it for the highest price possible. So yeah, it'll, it'll sell ultimately if the seller wants it to sell. It'll sell likely at whatever the highest bid is. Got it. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, you know, Brendan Ryan says, "Oh dear God, more bureaucracy." But really, I mean, can can you like give some Give a peek into the efficiency of the platform. Obviously, you had to employ some new technology so that you could run this. Um, you know, and and when we think about it, you know, you you come from a financial background, so you're you're really taking something that's been working for a long time in that industry, being financial markets, and applying it here. Uh, speak a bit to the efficiency of how this how you expect this to work. Yeah, again, look, it's a very efficient process, right? Seven days. All right, so seven days. And again, I think when people see it, they'll realize how simple it actually is. Our job is to take, you know, what could be a difficult uh, and sort of complex, uh, you know, sort of build out and give our, our technology team a lot of credit. Uh, it's not easy to build. We built it. And I think people, once they see it, will realize exactly how simple and smooth it is. Again, seven-day process. Uh, people can submit one bid, one bid only to start. Top three individual bids advance. Then they get one more best and final bid. All the while, uh, that's competing against a fractional bid. Whoever wins, wins. Okay. All right. Uh, makes sense to me. I mean, again, it, it, so, much, so many of these things are simplified by the, the platform that they're on. And uh, so, you know, if you have a good technology, if you have a, a good piece of software to run this, uh, it should be pretty, I would expect it to run pretty smooth and you seem pretty confident in that. So that's good to hear. Uh, this question kind of doesn't necessarily relate to this, but it came in uh, on, on, I'm not sure where, maybe Twitter from Sports Card Stallion. Um, Alex, Alex Bashan, I know who he is, says, is collectible able to borrow against the assets that are offered to buyers or sellers of the collectibles? We, we are not. We're not. Simple as that. Okay. Nice to know. And then uh, the, the last question came in on Twitter. Uh, and sorry, uh, forgive me if this is repetitive, but I'm going to read it as it came. He says, I'm assuming there will be full disclosure of the context price agreed upon by all shareholders for the Mahomes National Treasures card, regardless of the outcome of the BWIC. 
So we we are we are not releasing that actually, right? And because again, you know, no no context prices are being disclosed. Again, that that facilitates more competitive bidding and sort of uh, standardizes the process across every lot. So uh, no shareholders will not know exactly what the context price is, but it will absolutely be utilized to uh, essentially sell an asset uh, if it meets or exceeds shareholder wishes. In which case, is the context price. Got it. Okay. Uh, Jeffrey Hart piped in earlier, said, never heard of BWIC before, but love the concept. Collector's Dream is here with us. Here's a question for the loud collector. I'm going to read it as it comes and let you answer it. He says, let's say 10 people own a $100,000 card. If one of the 10 owners wants to buy out some other shareholders, can he give a shotgun deal to the rest of the group to increase his holdings? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, you're, you're always able to do that on collectible, by the way. You know, you, you don't have to necessarily buy out. Uh, every single shareholder, you can come and say essentially an out loud bid for, you know, X percentage of shares outstanding at whatever price you're willing to pay for. So this is always an option. In fact, you know, we, we've had a couple uh, people starting to ask about that when they're seeing, um, again, not securities advice, but they're starting to see that certain assets are trading well below uh, recent auction comps, right? So if someone wants to essentially get a more meaningful stake in an asset that might be trading well below perhaps what it should, uh, that's absolutely a possible, you know, possibility. I do expect that to potentially increase now that people know there's also a real catalyst uh, in, in the rather near term for every asset on the platform. Awesome. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about the fact that a lot, like this press release had really for me three three main components. The first one was the BWIC, this this brand new this brand new uh, offering sales sales method on on collectible, but it also mentioned that collectible is moving into the world of non-sports cards and memorabilia. Uh, so things like non-sports cards, things like video games, uh, TCG, trading cards games like Pokemon and that, comics, sports art. Speak a little bit to, you know, how long have you wanted to move collectible into these other sort of verticals of collectibles? And what expertise do you have in-house to curate and and really to make sure that you, you know what you're doing? I mean, I feel like you, Ezra, are and and David Marino and the people that I know, you know, the the, the team at Collectible, you all, you know, Brandon. I remember driving from Atlantic City to New York with Brandon talking sports cards and that. So it seems like you guys have some sports card knowledge. What are you doing to uh, to really supplement that on the on these other within these other verticals? Yeah. So you know, on on the category expansion, we're we're pumped. Uh, this is something we've always has always been on the roadmap, right? So uh, if people could see sort of the collectible roadmap dating back to 2020, uh, it was really, hey, we're going to start with sports. We're going to learn how the fractional business works. There's a lot to the fractional business, uh, regulatory, legal, accounting, you name it. Uh, it's there. So it's complicated enough to do. So we want to start with one category, kind of own that category. And then once we felt good about all the other processes and we were going to expand to other verticals. So, um, you know, exact, we, we sort of exactly met our timeline. We always want to uh, kind of branch off in other categories, Q1 of 2023. And obviously, you know, we're in January of 2023. So the, the, the timeline is is exactly met. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, the first uh, category expansion, I believe there's going to be others coming and you know, more, more, more announcements to come shortly. Uh, comics, we've got some amazing, amazing comic books. Uh, you know, first cover Batman, first cover Superman, first cover Wonder Woman, uh, et cetera. Really, you know, premier, premier uh, assets within that category. Uh, we have graded video games. Uh, again, I'm not definitely not an expert in graded video games, but from what I hear, uh, we have one lot in particular, which is has been described to me for sports card 
uh, for sports card collectors is essentially it's a 52 tops mantle and an eight, seven and a half and seven all in one lot. Right. So you know, that that shows you kind of you know how 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 cool some of the stuff we have is. So we have uh, one of those. Uh, we have TCG. We're excited about that ravenous collector base. And, you know, in, in that market, so we're excited to expand. Uh, and we have a partnership with a pretty renowned sports artist named James, James Fiorentino. So we're excited to uh, you know, officially roll out his first painting on collectible. So uh, really, really excited, right? I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, what, what gives us credibility in this category, it's really working with great partners, right? So, you know, one thing about collectible, just through all the things we've done, the Mint Collective, Art Basel, you name it, shows like this, you know, we do have a great network. Uh, and we've, you know, we've been looking at different ways to integrate uh, some of those partners, um, you know, who want to work with us, and we want to work with them more creatively. So this is really a great way to do it, to kind of rely on some, some top collectors, dealers, uh, collections, auction houses, you name it, uh, and to do it in, in a pretty meaningful way. So uh, if we don't have the expertise in-house, we'll absolutely outsource it to people we, we trust, respect, and have, have a high degree of integrity. Well, I can definitely speak to sports cards, but sports art, I don't have much, much knowledge of, but you mentioned James Fiorentino. I had the, uh, the, the, I got to call it a privilege of seeing, meeting him and seeing his art. Uh, when was that? That must've been at the, uh, the national last year, I think. Um, yeah, the national in Atlantic city and, uh, his art, it absolutely blew my mind. I, he, he, it's, it's unbelievably beautiful. So, um, yeah, boy, oh boy. Is that so a quick, nice quick plug there. So he, uh, the painting that's being offered in Bewick, uh, it's a one of one Steph Curry watercolor rendering. So, you know, I was having a funny conversation. Actually, as part of this, I, I wound up interviewing a bunch of uh, sort of category leaders and new categories that we uh, are branching out into. And I, I interviewed James and uh, it was just interesting how he put it. He said, you know, look, you can have, and again, you know, not, not a perfect comparison, but I thought it was interesting how he put it. Uh, essentially, you, you know, you have numbered to 99 Steph Curry RPAs, right? Collectible sold one for, I think it was $760,000 back in, I think, uh, you know, it was probably last year. Obviously, those are trading still in the six figures, but you could have 99 of those, right? And those trade for six figures. This is a one-of-one signed Steph Curry watercolor rendition uh, by arguably the most renowned uh, sports uh, artist of his time. Uh, James, James Fiorentino, by the way, cool, cool little fact about James. He was the, the youngest or still is the youngest uh, sports artist to ever be featured in the, in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I think he got there when he was 15 years old. So he's, he's been doing this for a long time. He's incredibly talented. Yeah, he, he, I, I can vouch for that. He is. I was, I was absolutely blown away. Okay, I want to go to a question here from Thomas Peterson that just came in. He says, can you further explain the consigner's role in the BWIC process? The consigner has turned the asset over to collectible and may have kept some shares, thus becoming an investor like other investors. Then it goes on to say, why should the consigner know the context price, but not the other investors? So, I'll, yeah, I'll let you clarify yeah, all this. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, you know, for, for the first question, right? So you know, effectively, sorry, there we go. Okay. Uh, yeah. So the, so, the, so the consigner is a consigner just like he or she would be at any auction house, right? When you give an item over to any auction house, you're, you're the consigner, right? The auction house's job is then to essentially put it up for competitive bidding, right? In a traditional auction format. The only real difference, uh, I would say two big differences when you consign to collectibles BWIC are the following, right? One is that arguably you have a much larger potential pool of buyers because not just you have individual buyers, but you also now have groups of buyers, right? So you're potentially expanding the pool of people who could bid on your asset. 
you also have more flexibility, right? So you could you could essentially see what bids you come in or come in for your asset and decide your best of course of action. You could sell the whole asset individually. You could sell part of the asset if the group bid you know is competitive, or you could not sell it at all, right? There's no obligation to sell. Again, this is part of you know sort of the the the, the process, right? Is giving sellers more optionality. It'll bring you know other assets to the market that perhaps otherwise wouldn't, right? So, you know, our view is that auction houses do a great, great job and have a lot of, you know, amazing, amazing benefits. Um, but I think collectible can do something very unique and that's, you know, fractional uh, and that's retaining equity in assets. And, you know, that's, that's having a larger pool of buyers, both individual and fractional pooled investors and ultimately giving uh, sellers optionality uh, that they might not otherwise have. Okay. So did that, did that uh, address this question here too then? Why should the consigner know and but not the other investors? I think you addressed that in that as well. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. So so here, I mean, yeah. So the, the again, sellers don't have to give a reserve price. Just like any consigner to an auction house, you don't, you can, you know, if if the auction house will allow it, you can use a reserve price. You don't have to, right? So same, same process here. You don't have to use a reserve price. Uh, you'll always have the option to not sell it, right? That's that's how the process goes. So, you know, again, uh, you know, similar to, you know, being consigner and using reserve at auction uh, as, as you are collectible. Got it. Okay. Um, let's go to Collector's Dream. Had this comment here. Glad to see them at Art Basel. What else are they doing to expand the sports card market? I just want to say before you answer this, I don't know any company that's, that really is doing more than you guys with, with the Mint Collective. And, and again, just trying to spread knowledge. You've been telling me since I met you, I guess it's already uh, two or two and a half years ago by now. And uh, one of the first things you said to me is we just want to, we want to share information and we want to, we want to, we want to have a knowledge database, if you will, and really just grow the help to grow the hobby. So I've always been impressed by that, but um, collector's dream might not be aware of what you've already done, but uh, let's just say, what, what else are you guys doing? Uh, unless I just mentioned everything. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, we, we've always tried to do things that, again, haven't been done before. Again, you know, there's we have amazing relationships. There's a lot of amazing companies, auction houses, marketplaces, entrepreneurs, dealers, you name it. There's a lot of amazing people in this category. Uh, collectibles always tried to do things differently. Right? We've always tried to kind of fill uh, niches and voids where we thought the market could use it. Right. So fractional is a perfect example. Right. We've you know, essentially introduced the ability for anyone of any income bracket to own you know, grails to own assets that otherwise would be completely, you know, sort of um, out of reach, right? Or, or you wouldn't have access to other ways, right? So we, we did that in fractional and fractional, uh, by no means are we giving up in fractional. Fractional will be a massive, massive part of this. We're just creating additional ways that fractional can be applied, yeah. right? Um, here, right, BWIC, we think this is another terrific innovation. Again, this is bringing a new way for assets to potentially transact and for people to understand, you know, sort of what, what their assets are worth. Right, in a process that is tried and true, been doing this for decades, that transact billions and billions and billions of dollars a year. In fact, you know, the amount of assets, the total value of the assets that transact in BWIC in the public markets probably exceeds that of the total you know, size of the sports card market in totality. Right? So this is not a new process. It's not something we're inventing out of thin air. This is something that we just think really will work in the collectibles market. Um, again, we did our puzzle, which is really just sort of you know, our, uh, you know, kind of presenting sports cards and other collectible assets to fine art collectors. We invented the Min Collective in partnership with IMG and Endeavor, which is sort of a first of its kind 
a conference series. We do other live events uh, or, you know, we've, we've done cocktails and cards and a bunch of social events, content series with Jeremy, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, we, we're, we're, we're trying to kind of um, to expand the market as best as we can and to bring different innovations to different people uh, and just and really just be part of what we think is a terrific category, terrific community and really just help to grow it. All right, cool. Uh, I just want to say to Brendan Ryan, I don't understand if your most recent comment is a question or if it's rhetorical. If it is a question, please uh, reword it so I can understand it better. Um, Ezra, you know, you the other thing that came in the press release was international expansion. The market will now be open to myself in Canada and people in other countries that are not the United States. Um, it almost feels like this is a kill two or three birds with one stone sort of thing. Can you just speak to that? And, and why would I now, you know, can I now get involved as a Canadian? And um, yeah, speak to that, please. Yeah. So the, the, the answer to that is you can get involved in collectible, but not necessarily in fractional ownership yet. Right. So you will, uh, we will be opening up BWIC. Again, you have two ways to bid. You can bid as an individual or you can bid as part of a group. Individual bids are available to any collector or investor all across the world. So if you're in Canada, you can bid on an asset, just like you can bid on any other auction house uh, for, you know, for full asset ownership. We have not yet opened up international uh, fractional participation. That's something that we're actually pretty close to doing in uh, very select regions all across the world. Unfortunately, I think we've, we've talked about this before. Canada happens to be uh, one of the toughest regulatory environments or countries to actually crack, even though we're close in proximity, apparently our regulators don't see eye to eye on, on, on securities laws. So we'd love to be in Canada. Canada is absolutely one of the regions where we see the most kind of inbound interest. Uh, the, the two regions we'll probably open up first uh, will be the uh, UK and Australia. Those actually will probably be coming soon. So we're excited to do that. But again, to, to be clear, uh, international bidders can bid on individual assets. They cannot yet participate in fractional. Got it. Okay. And and listen, as a Canadian, I'm not going to blame you for not being able to crack the Canadian code. I'll blame our regulators here. But at the same exactly. time, I, have to yeah, thank... I can assure you is that we've tried. We are I trying. Know. I know. And we've tried extensively. It's uh, unfortunately Canada is a tough market to crack. Yeah, well, it, that's one of those things. It, it is what it is. And uh, I know that their their mission is to protect the investor, but uh, sometimes it might go a little bit too far. I'd, I'd be willing to invest for sure on fractional if I was if I was eligible to. All right, um, let's go to this question from DR. He says, Ezra, what if anything surprised you in 2022 during the environment that we just experienced, which did show the decreasing price movement uh, in several sports cards within the, I'm paraphrasing, several sports cards within the market. Not every card went down in value, but many did. You know, it's funny. I, I'm not sure I've been surprised. I mean, in fact, I would say, if anything, I've been pleasantly, I've been pleasantly surprised, right? I mean, I think if you had given me the macro environment that all of us are still experiencing, right? But certainly we experienced, uh, you know, in large part in 2022, everything you hear is inflation this, recession that. You see a massive decline across other asset classes. Look at real estate, look at gold. I mean, even things that people thought were sort of inflation proof, went down considerably. Look at some of the blowups. And cryptocurrencies, right? And some of those coins and you know, markets being down as much as they were. Uh, I thought, you know, the, the sports card market actually did pretty well, right? Again, we have if you zoom out, you know, a lot of cards, again, not not every, and certainly a lot of cards are back down to sort of COVID levels and pre-COVID levels. But by and large, I thought the category actually did pretty well. In fact, there are areas in the market that were up. You know, one I believe is hockey cards, right? You know, your your uh, your sweet spot, right? So there are certainly areas in the market. 
that I thought did exceptionally well. Uh, and obviously, you know, you're still getting a lot of high end transactions. Uh, you know, I think, you know, Q3, Q4 of 2022 brought uh, some of the largest, uh, most prominent sports collectible sales uh, we've, we've ever experienced, right? Including our Mickey Mantle first, you know, first eight figure sale uh, in the market. I mean, one, one thing I would also note is, you know, one thing about Buick that we like is how curated it is, right? This is not something where we're going to do, you know, 5,000 lots every week, right? I think that's, I think that's one risk factor. One thing that I would like to see a little bit less of is, le- is fewer auctions, right? Less, less supply hitting the market, uh, a little bit more curation, a little bit more thought uh, behind it. I mean, you see a lot of these big cards that people thought were very rare, uh, you know, seem to come up pretty often at auction houses. And I think ultimately when something is not overly rare or perceived to be not overly rare, I think that in and of itself causes downward pressure. People would just say, hey, I can get a next auction, next auction, next auction. Right. So if there's one thing that another thing I love about Buick is how curated we're going to be. Right. This is 25 lots, 25 iconic lots that um, we like. Right. And we we like for for reasons that, um, you know, I think I think a lot of other people will like as well. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, Okay. I'm going to follow up the question that DR asked about 2022. If you were just looking back on 20, let's look forward into 2023. We're barely into it. Do you have any expectations of where the market's going to go? Any predictions, any speculation? What do you see happening in the, in the sports card and collectible hobby as we make our way through 2023? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be an interesting year, right? I think it'll be a very interesting year. I mean, look, you know, off the bat, uh, we already got an announcement from Sotheby's that they're uh, auctioning off a five to seven million dollar Kobe Bryant jersey. I think that's going to kick us off nicely. Um, you know, we've got the main collective coming up, which you know I think will be a very interesting tell just in terms of sentiment around the hobby. Last year, you know, the first one it was you know everyone was very positive, very excited. You know, I think you know some of that uh, enthusiasm has waned a little bit, but everything I heard from the Dallas Card Show, I don't know if anyone uh, was there who is here, but you know the the intel that I received was. You know, things were moving. Uh, your dealers making money. You had cards, you know, really selling. High end cards are really selling. Um, so, you know, I think it'll be interesting, right? I mean, you, know, you, you have to consider everything on a relative basis relative to, you know, other asset classes, relative to the liquidity profile of the world. To interest, I mean, I think I think it can't just be looked at as how the sports card market is doing. I think there's a lot of factors that are that are you know are really intertwined. Um, but look, I think it'll be an interesting year. I think a lot of companies doing a lot of great things. A lot of Entrepreneurs really trying to move the market forward. A lot of money, a lot of you know, sort of talented people. A lot of capital is coming to the space. You know, I think I think things are still set up for success. I really do. Um, and again, if you zoom out, not just over the last six months, last year, things you know, by and large, look pretty good, right? And so I think it just depends, oftentimes, on you know, kind of what time frame you're operating in. And you know, I also hear from collectors all the time. You know, some people are thrilled the market has pulled back because it means that now they can get their hands on cards that were previously out of reach, right? So all a matter of perspective, hobby has many different ways to, you know, participate. Uh, and, you know, I think, I think there's always something for everyone, right? No matter what the, the macro environment is, no matter what the market does, there's always, you know, sort of a lot of things that um, people can find to be interested in and, uh, and, and get excited about in the, in, you know, in the hobby. Yeah, I, th- I think the hobby's in a great place right now, too. We've been through some adversity, but from, a, I think, strength comes from adversity. And I think the hobby is, is a great example of that. A lot of the collectors that that we we gained during the epidemic are still with us. And they might have, a lot of them who might have thought, this is crazy what's going on. 
Uh, and now they're seeing that things are starting to normalize again. I think volumes are, are, are strong still, a lot stronger than they were pre-pandemic. And I had similar intel out of Dallas that it was a great show. Vendors were happy. I'm really excited for the Burbank show coming up here in a couple of weeks in, in, in Ontario, California on Super Bowl weekend. So we'll have even more intel out of that show. You've got Culture Collision coming up in Atlanta at the end of this month. I unfortunately won't be there, but I can't wait to hear what comes out of there as well. So I'm excited about, about the year ahead. And I'm with you, uh, you know, the, the whole sentiment that prices have come down a little bit. Collectors can access more cards. That's kind of what it's all about, accessing cards and building our collection. So that's a good thing. Uh, Danny Black, my friend from Sports Vault Podcast, says, hello, guys. Great news for Collectible with Bewick. So that's very nice to hear. Uh, Hits and Chicks wants to say that uh, Dave Marino is a legend. <laughs> He's it. a legend. Agreed. He's a legend. I agree with that. He is a legend. And thank you, uh, Hits and Chicks, for that comment down there. And then uh, the Currency Project, who do really wonderful uh, sports card art, say, uh, obviously, they and this is obviously, they love the overlap between art and sports cards because they they take sports cards and make art with them. Uh, What process, if any, is Collectible using to cross-educate collectors and investors from one market segment with the other? You've obviously done our Basel, which is that the extent of it or is there more? Yeah, great, great, great question here, right? Yeah, so, you know, with Art Basel, you know, certainly it was a great opportunity to really, you know, sort of cross-educate, uh, fi- you know, fine art collectors, contemporary art collectors about collectibles, right? Sport, we had a lot of sports cards on display, um, you know, other other great assets, comic books as well at Art Basel. And, you know, we thought that was a really worthwhile experience. You know, the amount of people, we sort of did a double take when they first stopped by our booth. You know, you're, you're used to seeing all this contemporary art, fine art, and then you're kind of smacked in the face with sports cards. And, it was interesting. At first, people weren't sure if these were art. And then ultimately, after a quick conversation, people were like, oh, yeah, I get it. This is absolutely art. Um, you know, so I thought that was pretty cool. Collectible will also be sending out uh, some content and, uh, and, and some emails just on quick primers on other categories that we're going to be introducing. Uh, so, again, that's comics, TCG, graded video games, et cetera, sports art. Um, so, yeah, if there's one thing Collectible always tries to do, hopefully we do a good job of it. Um, is just to provide as much education, insights as we possibly can. One thing I would also uh, I'd flag for people is when you go on Collectible, it's not just transactional. There's also a section on Collectible called Insights, and that's updated pretty pretty frequently. Uh, I would argue, I'm obviously biased saying this, but I would argue that it's probably the best uh, news feed of any Collectible site I've seen. Right, so anytime there's a major story in the Collectibles market or you know major market moving insights, immediately uploaded to to collectibles insight. So even if you have no interest in BWIC or no interest in fractional, I would sign up for collectible just to sort of keep abreast of, of market trends. So, you know, always trying to educate, um, you know, always trying to kind of get new, new people involved. One other thing I should add is part of the, the uh, mint collective will also be a real educational part uh, as well. Like, I don't know if and people were there last year, but the people who were, they'll know that it was part card show, part, uh, you know, sort of transactional and also part education. So we had panels and we had speakers, you know, some of the leading minds of the industry kind of talking about talking and educating all at the same time. So we'll be doing more of that. So if you're interested in kind of learning more, uh, being educated in new markets, I would highly encourage you to come in in, in Vegas in March. Yeah, great answer. And um, I, again, as I, for for my, for my perception, you guys do a great job of educating and, and uh, just trying to grow the hobby overall. And our Basel was a great initiative. We did a couple episodes talking about that. Uh, earlier on with both uh, eBay and some some of the a couple of people from your team 
who were there on with boots on the ground. Uh, Thomas Peterson, back to Bewick for a moment, says, is the context price, which is also the reserve price, set solely by the share weighted input of the investors? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say it's it is the biggest input by a long shot, right? I mean, you know, we, we, we do this for every buy it offer. Uh, you know, we, we, you know, we as the asset manager ultimately have the final say, but you know, the, the shareholder sentiment, shareholder, uh, you know, surveys are, are the, the biggest input factor by a long shot. So your, 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 your responses definitely mean a, a hell of a lot. All right. And this is going to be the last one I bring up today. Cause we are, we are coming up to the end of the show. Brendan Ryan says, I'm trying to wrap my head around the benefits of fractional ownership, which seems like an oxymoron because it adds a layer of self-inflicted and complications the average collector doesn't need. I mean, I, I'm going to just say right off the bat that it just it's about accessibility. It allows people to buy into something that they otherwise can't afford. Not everybody can afford a $10 million Mickey Mantle 52 Tops card, but almost everybody can afford $10, a $10 share. Any, I mean, to me, it's it's obvious. I don't know what you're missing, Brendan Ryan. But uh, Ezra, anything you'd like to add? Maybe I'm misinterpreting his his comment. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I, I think I think that's right, right? It's about it's about accessibility and you know, sort of ultimately a, a a different way to transact, right? It gives it gives sellers liquidity, it gives buyers optionality, um, and again, it allows accessibility for people who otherwise would not have it. Fully aware, fractional might not be for everyone, and that's okay, right? Another great thing about Bewick. Uh, is that you know it's not necessarily just a fractional platform, right? It doesn't necessarily just appeal to people who are interested in fractional ownership, right? These are assets that are available to any individual collector as well. Also, what I also say is you know in partnership with eBay, we also have an eBay store. It's called Buy Collectible. Uh, we'll, we'll be taking in you know I wouldn't I don't want to say low end, but you know lower end consignments and you know having more more of more frequent cadence there as well. So. You know, I think if you if you watch collectibles moves closely over the next couple of months, you'll see different ways that we're engaging with uh, the community. Uh, obviously, fractionals are bread and butter. It's what we do exceptionally well. Uh, but there's also a lot of other ways that people can, uh, you know, sort of, I would say, meaningfully transact and to participate with collectible. All right. Awesome stuff. Well, I've enjoyed this. Thank you so much to Alex Sports Card Stallion. Your question was answered earlier. Ezra. If you have uh, any final words, uh, in a moment will be the time. First, I'll let everybody know that next Sunday on Collectible Live, we will be taking a look at the assets that are in the first BWIC tranche. And uh, that should be fun. We're going to have some guests come on and talk about these. Very, the Hopefully, we'll get to touch on all 25 of these curated assets. We'll see if we are able to get to them all in the, in the time allotment, but we'll do our best. Ezra, uh, thanks for coming on. Final comments to you, and then we're going to wrap up. Yeah, no, look, I think we're we're excited. You know, one thing, obviously, Collectible tries to move the needle forward. We try to advance the hobby, try to grow the hobby in different ways. Uh, you know, I think I think Buick is that, again, you know, more more liquidity and catalyst for shareholders, different ways to transact. We'll get new people into the ecosystem, open up international, open up different verticals. Uh, one, one other thing I'll also add about group bidding, which is a, a component of Buick. Uh, one, and I think we touched upon this briefly, but I just want to make sure that we, we sort of land the plane uh, on this one is group bidding also applies to any asset on any other marketplace as well. So more more uh, to come there, but you could also uh, participate in group bids on any asset, any marketplace. Uh, so we'll have more announcements there to come. But uh, yeah, uh, the first bids are next Sunday night, and we're and we're excited about it. All right, very good. And just Brendan Ryan, this comment here, this my simple response to that is that yeah, uh, each to their own. Not everybody operates the way you do, so. 
your opinion is noted and it's valid, but it does not represent everybody else out there. All right, Ezra, thank you so much for joining. Um, hang tight right there for a moment. Everybody, thank you for joining. We will see you back here at Collectible Live next Sunday. And uh, that's it. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us.